Welcome back to the Friends of Europe Frankly Speaking podcast. I'm Jamie Shea, a senior fellow at Friends of Europe, and I'm delighted to be back in the chair today uh, moderating this podcast, which is going to be devoted to security. And I'm also delighted to welcome back my two comrades in arms, a fellow senior fellows of Peace, Security and Defence at Friends of Europe, Chris Kremidas uh, Kotney, uh, joining us from Greece and from the south of France, Paul Taylor. Gentlemen, uh, thanks again for uh, participating uh, today. Now, uh, when we started these Friends of Europe, frankly speaking, podcasts, uh, we spent a lot of time discussing Ukraine, because at that time, Russia had just invaded Ukraine in February uh, 2022. Ukraine was the dominant international media story, and we were plotting the early stages of the conflict in, in terms of Russia's invasion and the spirited resistance of Ukrainians. Well, we're now well over a year on into that conflict and, and already it's being, uh, in media terms at least, uh, somewhat overshadowed by other stories, notably at the moment, of course, the increasing violence in Sudan and the prospect of civil war in that country, the theme of the evacuations of Americans, Brits and uh, EU citizens and, and so on. So Ukraine may not quite be, uh, dear uh, listeners, uh, on your radar screen in the way that it once was. So all the more reason today to take a deep dive uh, uh, with uh, Paul and Chris uh, into the latest developments. I, mean, I suppose, uh, Paul and Chris, one of the key questions uh, is, will 2023 be the decisive year, uh, hopefully in terms of the Ukrainians pushing the Russians back, that we all are all hoping for? Or are we really now settling down for a long, uh, a bloody but protracted conflict uh, likely to end in some kind of uh, uh, stalemate. Um, after uh, the uh, battles for control of Bakhmut that have dominated the winter months uh, and which have been described by some as a meat grinder, is Russia or Ukraine in the stronger position uh, going uh, forward? into the uh, spring offensives that everybody is anticipating. Spring has arrived, but the offensives have not arrived yet. So what are the prospects uh, for uh, uh, those as well? Is the international assistance uh, that's been so uh, much touted uh, in terms of tanks and artillery and air defense uh, likely to arrive in time to have a significant difference. And of course, there's a lot been going on uh, on the diplomatic front. Uh, so uh, let's uh, immediately get into all of that. And I'm going to first and foremost turn to Chris. So Chris, I've already sort of given the big questions out there. Um, the winter months, uh, any significance apart from a, a battle over a couple of uh, apartment blocks in the center of uh, the city of Bakhmut in the in the, in, in the Donbass? What are you anticipating from the spring offensives? Tell us a little bit, Chris, about these uh, weapons deliveries and whether they're going to be uh, enough uh, and timely enough to make a, a, a difference. Um, and, and then, Chris, I'm going to ask you a little bit about how the Ukrainian military has transformed in one year of war and what it means for NATO. But that's a little bit uh, at a later stage, Chris. First of all, give us an update on the current military situation. Over to you. Thank you, Jamie. Good morning. It's great to be back. So obviously, and I think it's pretty what much conventional wisdom now that the Russian winter offensive has been a failure. They continue to attempt. Uh, you know, largely human wave attacks and some mechanized elements in the Bakhmut region and Kremina and other places. Uh, and it it has indeed been a meat grinder. During the winter months at the highest, at the worst 
some of the worst days in January, February, you were seeing, you know, 1,300 to 1,500 Russian casualties a day. Uh, and so for every five Russian casualties, you'd have one Ukrainian casualty on average. So you're seeing, uh, you know, the, the, the Russian forces be ground down. You're seeing them, uh, you know, losing large numbers of personnel and equipment uh, and in trying to take Bakhmut and a lot of uh, Western uh, leaders and others have been sort of urging Ukraine to sort of let go of Bakhmut back off to more defensible terrain. And, and Ukraine has really made a stand there. Uh, and I, I think Ukraine believes that they can really change the force ratio by grinding down the Russians in this particular place, which they have been doing. And so what we've seen is in March and April, that casualty freight for the Russians is going down to around 600 per day, still terrible numbers but it's not quite as severe as it was. So you're starting to see that their offensive has culminated. Uh, they are now digging in across the board to more defensive positions. You can see them preparing defenses throughout Crimea and other places. You know, everyone's waiting for the big counterattack. Uh, and there are, you know, two schools of thought on that. One is that, you know, they need to counterattack quickly and seize the, you know, seize the initiative when they can. Uh, and the other school of thought, which I tend to subscribe to, is that the longer they wait and, sh and shift the force ratio and get new deliveries of weapons and get the training under the belt, the more likely they will succeed with a counteroffensive. So I think we all seem to want a spring counteroffensive, but I don't think reality calls for that right now on a large scale. I don't think they have uh, the force ratios they want. You know, some of us in particular, a counteroffensive in the south would involve a crossing of the Dnipro River, an extremely difficult task for the most trained uh, mechanized forces, uh, you know, in the world. Very difficult to attack and be crossing a, a, a river at the same time and putting and putting up your own pontoon bridge. You know, so this is a very complex type of operation you need. Uh, and this is the sort of thing that if you don't have the preparations, the training, the air defenses in place, the GPS jammers to sort of uh, knock any uh, art artillery or Russian missile attacks on the, the crossing site uh, from, from being able to target that area, all those bits are hugely important. And I don't I think I don't think they're they are there yet, uh, but they may be in the near future. And of course, that that may or may not be where they decide to attack. I know there have been reports of. Uh, from a number of sources that show that Ukrainian forces are have actually crossed to the eastern side of the river. That doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be where they attack. But I think what we're looking at is that situation. Now, to move on quickly to weapons and, and some of the tank deliveries, you know, one, one issue we're seeing is that we have a number of different types of tanks. So we've got the 71 Leopard 2s coming uh, from various European countries uh, and those will have a 120 millimeter gun. You have about 100 older leopards with a 105 millimeter gun. So right now you already have two different kinds of ammunition, which is on its and its on its easiest days, logistics is difficult. And when you add a mix of types of ammunition and whatnot, you're only complicating things further. The American M1s won't arrive for months. So I don't, you know, if there's any spring offensive, it won't involve the American M1 tanks. They're only now, we'll be starting to train them. Uh, the Ukrainians on the M1 starting in May. There is about a company size element of British Challenger tanks coming about 14. Uh, similar size gun to the Leopard 2s, but they, they have been in training with the UK. So I think it's, you know, you have to get the equipment 
the the training you have to get the the gunnery training but then the unit training together to maneuver and communicate and do their th their bits and then add the entire logistics logistics tail that goes with it and the engineer elements you need to breach defenses and that is a very large and difficult undertaking that cannot be done in a hurry so i think while we all would very much like to see a spring offensive start soon i think it will be conditions based and not based on any particular date uh, Chris, uh, what you tend to be implying is that uh, uh, the equipment is arriving obviously slowly. A lot of it has to be upgraded and repaired before it can be delivered. Some of that may drag on into next year. Um, and when you do see the numbers, um, in terms of what the Ukrainians were asking for, you remember 300 tanks, 600 armored personnel carriers, then the numbers tend to be uh, quite small. So um, are we likely to see uh, that uh, there isn't going to be enough Western military support to really enable the Ukrainians to, to make a difference this year? What's the consequence of the war dragging on uh, next year? And one other thing, Chris, uh, I, I hear some stories, uh, particularly from these leaked Pentagon documents that the Ukrainians may be running out of air defense systems with the risk that Russia gains control of the skies, which probably would put the kibosh, if I can use a good uh, slang expression, on any uh, successful Ukrainian spring offensive. So uh, uh, does the West really need to sort of step this up uh, big time uh, if it's going to make any difference on the battlefield? I definitely think the West should step up and and, and speed up the supply of these these requested weapon systems to Ukraine. But let's remember, just because you have the equipment doesn't mean you know how to use it individually and in units. And this is what takes time. Uh, and there are not a lot of armies in the world who practice large-scale mechanized maneuver, very few. And so it takes time. You have to get the equipment, familiarize the crew, train the crew, and then train the crews to operate as teams, as platoons, companies, and battalions. That can take months. So I think I think that's going to take some time. I think that, that when it comes to air defense, there's two different questions for Ukraine. One is, is they need air defenses to protect Kyiv and, and other key cities and, and, and uh, you know, critical infrastructure sites. But if you're planning a counteroffensive, air defense is a critical element because without air defense, you lose mobility to missile and artillery attack, uh, air attacks and whatnot. And so uh, you know, Ukraine in the coming months and right now is facing some very difficult decisions about where and how to use their air defenses. If you don't have enough air defense to do both, you'll have to accept risk somewhere. So do you strip away a lot of the air defense that you're using right now to protect your people and your infrastructure to protect a, a large, uh, you know, counteroffensive, uh, you know, and, and what's the impact of that? Or do you sort of, you know, try to split the two? It's very difficult it's uh, extremely difficult decisions for national leaders to make uh, in, in these kind of situations, because when you go from the defense to the offense, it's, it's a very you have a very different need for air defense, especially if you're going to cross rivers or yeah. to protect your force out front. You have to have a moving umbrella, which is, is not always uh, you know, easy to execute uh, by the best armies. And so I think air defense is something that, you know, if, if countries can't give aren't, can't give tanks quickly, then please give air defense quickly. Yeah, that's a clear message, Chris. I'm going to bring in Paul here because, uh, Paul, you obviously uh, have been following the debate in the EU about uh, allocating, what is it, 2 billion uh, euros in order to uh, buy at least this year 1 million uh, 155 millimeter artillery shells for, for, for Ukraine. 
Um, uh, this, of course, is important for the EU in terms of the collective funding of armaments, the EU stepping up in the uh, defensive area. Uh, but, of course, there is the more immediate question of whether the EU is capable of uh, finding all of these shells or contracting quickly. Um, I hear that already some controversies about uh, you know, whether uh, those shells can be bought only within the EU or outside. So give us a, a, a sense of uh, what if the EU is really going to, again, be able to step up to the plate in a way that's going to make a difference in 2023. Yeah, you know, Jamie, as you said, there's a sort of three-pronged plan, in fact. The first prong is uh, for member states to empty their stocks now and give whatever they can to Ukraine. And that uh, is backed by EU money, a billion euros for that uh, in reimbursements, but also by the prospect that the EU will put an extra billion into uh, uh, ordering more production and therefore they will be able to backfill what they're sending uh, to Ukraine. So that has begun, and that, I'm told, is going quite fast. Um, uh, prong number two is the bulk purchase of ammunition. This is a first for the European Union to, to collectively purchase ammunition. And it was an idea that came from uh, Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kallas originally, who said, look, we've, we've, we've done a bulk buy of vaccines, and that seemed to work. Why can't we do it for ammunition? Um, and so uh, the European Defence Agency has been charged with um, pulling that together, pulling the orders together. Um, and uh, the, the difficulty, as you say, at the moment, uh, the, the actual regulation to allow this to happen is stuck in uh, negotiation among member states. And it's about not so much whether you can buy our, um, the shells outside the EU. I think they want to, to procure the shells within the EU, but the components for the shells you know, the, 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 the gunpowder, um, the triggers, all, all the bits that go into making uh, a shell. Can you buy any of those from third countries, as they call them? Um, and uh, they're in the process of working that out. And I think there'll be a solution within the next week or so. But you have, as usual, within the EU, two camps. One camp led by France, which says, no, 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 this is about European industry. The whole point is to get the European defence industry working not for European taxpayers to spend their money getting the South Korean or the, for that matter, even the British or the Turkish defense industry working. So, uh, and then you've got the others who say, no, the important thing is urgency. And we've got to buy this stuff wherever we can and not be too picky about who we go to. And those two camps have been debating it, but I think we'll come to a resolution fairly soon and there will be some limited ability to buy components from abroad. And then there's a third prong, which is very, very much more sketchy, which is uh, would be an extra billion to ramp up the whole European production capacity for ammunition in the future. Yeah, and tell this, us a little bit about that, Paul, uh, because that, that's very important. Is, is European defence industry in the kind of sort of state at the moment that it could provide the monies there and the contracts that they sort of quickly ramp up production? Or, you know, after the Cold War and the peace dividend, is European defence industry in such a, a sort of a small state uh, now uh, that it would take you know, a long, long time, you know, to really reopen all of these production lines? So give us a sense of how feasible this is. Well, I think, Jamie, that, you know, it's it's very much uh, European industry depends on demand signals. Uh, up to now, it's been very much a just-in-time operation since the end of the Cold War. People have got rid of a lot of industrial capacity, and they have actually uh, uh, also 
um, uh, uh, haven't been using factories fully. So the question is whether you have one shift a day or three shifts a day to produce ammunition. That, of course, of course, requires hiring workers. Some of them skilled workers have to be trained. Not every, We've lost skills as well as production capacity. And then there's the question, Do uh, for industry, do we uh, put in new production lines or do we convert existing pro production lines to ammunition? Um, and that is really about the demand signal. Business has to have the confidence that this is not a sort of like uh, face masks. We need uh, 3 million face masks uh, next week uh, and next year we'll need none at all. Um, it has to be a consistent uh, uh, demand signal. And that's what this uh, third prong of the plan is about, but it requires uh, money which isn't there yet and which member states will have to agree to whether they do so when they review the midterm review of the EU budget, which is a process that's just getting started, or whether they add more money to this off-balance sheet uh, uh, European peace facility, as it's euphemistically called, uh, which is the, 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 the thing that Europe can use to buy weapons collectively, uh, remains to be seen. But I think that's really important. And that's the, the signal that we recognize that we're going into a prolonged period where we're going to need a much more uh, 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 war-ready arms industry. And I'm not sure whether all of our politicians are there yet and whether all of our societies are there yet, but that's what's at stake in that third prong. Paul, thank you very much for that. And uh, it suggests to me that uh, this idea of what being on a semi-permanent war footing looks like <laughs> in Europe um, and what it's going to involve, I, I think that would be a fascinating topic to engage you two gents on in a future podcast. Uh, but for now, uh, I'd like to switch back to Chris, because Chris, you are like uh, the two of us, um, as a, uh, uh, with Paul too, as a his, historians of warfare, know that you know warfare is all about which army adjust the fastest and the most effectively to the lessons of fighting, um, you know, being able to sort of transform while you are still doing, as it were. And uh, of course, the question is, is whether the Russians are learning and transforming faster than the Ukrainians or, or vice versa. And, and of course, looking at NATO and collective defense, uh, uh, are there lessons for NATO in terms of how the Ukrainians have adapted to the current sort of way of warfare uh, that Russia has imposed on them uh, thus far. So uh, I know that you follow all of these things, you know, the technology side, the uh, the cyberspace side. Um, so give us a sort of a sense, you know, very briefly, because I know we could talk about this for many happy hours, uh, but give us a sense of, you know, what you think the main major transformation areas have been thus far, uh, whether Russia or Ukraine is now adjusting the fastest, and any takeaways for, for, for NATO as it looks to, you know, boosting its own posture in Central and Eastern Europe? I think the biggest difference so far has been the small unit leadership. And that is, you know, junior officers, non-commissioned officers, you know, the Russians have never really had a non-commissioned officer corps, which in Western armies is the backbone of the force. Uh, the Russians have never had that. Uh, and so, you don't have really strong small unit leadership in the Russian army. The Ukrainians have been developing that over time. We're seeing it proven right now. But what we're also seeing with so many casualties on both sides is, is this year, uh, someone in the Ukrainian army who was a sergeant, who was a squad leader last year, is a company commander this year, who's going back, you know. And so, again, this is where you get back to the Second World War, where we had 
Yeah, people like Creighton Abrams at age 28, commanding a battalion, relieving Bastogne. So I think, you know, you're seeing younger, battle-hardened Ukrainian junior leaders becoming, uh, you know, moving up, you know, moving up due to casualties. Uh, and I think that is something that is going, I think when if the day we do see a Ukrainian victory, it's going to be some very young looking Ukrainian soldiers and officers. Yeah, there's a lot of old guys mm -hmm. fighting too, is, and, and, and so many uh, brave women they're fighting as well. But I think what you're seeing is it's a younger generation of Ukrainians who's really stepping in. They're very tech savvy. They're extremely effective at very small unit level, utilizing the technology given to them. So some of these uh, switchblade drones and some of these other uh, loitering drones they've been given, they're using with great effect. Again, this is the joystick and video game generation. They're comfortable with the technology. They've thought about how to use it. Uh, they're, 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 uh, and so we're seeing where they're using it along the lines of places like Bakhmut and Kremina and elsewhere. They are able to, to use this, these uh, capabilities to sort of pinprick, take out Russian positions one at a time to a surgical scale. Uh, and, you know, they're using their ingenuity and their initiative. That's the other thing is the Russian forces don't really have initiative. And that is hugely important when you're planning a counteroffensive. You know, you're, you're, uh, when you're in a, in a, in a, launching a counteroffensive, whenever that may come, it will rely on the audacity and uh, ability to think on their feet of those junior uh, Ukrainian military leaders to make those things happen. They, because, I mean, war is control chaos, and you've got to have people on the spot. On the Russian side, you don't have that so much. They're always looking up to the boss to say, what should I do now? But I think there's one thing important I need to mention about the counteroffensive and why, if you're Ukraine, you need to be very careful about ensuring if you, when you launch a counteroffensive, you have, they have to ensure they succeed. Uh, any any Ukrainian counteroffensive will become a magnet for the Russian Air Force or Russian missile, uh, you know, missile systems and, and artillery and whatnot. And I think the reason it's so important is the risk of a failed counteroffensive could mean a loss of external support and funding and increased pressure from other countries for Ukraine to settle for a ceasefire that leaves a lot of their territory in Russian hands. I think they're acutely aware of that. And that is why I think when they do launch the counteroffensive, they, will, they won't do it unless they really have a very good idea that it will succeed. Chris, thanks a lot. And I, I'm, I'm particularly grateful to you for ending in a way that segues very smoothly uh, into the second part of our podcast today, although we don't have uh, a great deal of time to discuss it, but still which is the diplomatic aspects of uh, uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, uh, Paul, uh, Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, was in uh, uh, Ukraine making his first visit since the war up to Kiev uh, last week. He sounded very upbeat uh, on the prospects of um, um, uh, Ukrainian uh, membership in the alliance. Of course, he didn't give a date because there's no date, but he, he was talking about it as something which uh, might, might happen sooner rather than later. Um, do you see that we really are now moving faster towards Ukrainian membership of NATO? Is, is, do you see a consensus emerging in the alliance? Uh, uh, President Zelensky apparently has been invited and has accepted, uh, according to Jens Stoltenberg, to attend the NATO summit in Vilnius. I, I suppose he won't want to show up in Vilnius unless he is guaranteed some kind of very concrete signal from the alliance. So how do you uh, assess that particular situation? Yeah, very interesting, Jamie. I don't think that uh, uh, President Zelensky is going to be able to go ahead, go home with a, 
a date for NATO membership, uh, but inviting him does indeed raise pressure on the, on the recalcitrant NATO members uh, to uh, uh, raise their uh, level of willingness to, uh, to do something for Ukraine. There are two or three things. First of all, um, what, what um, uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg said in uh, Kiev was actually not that exceptional. Uh, if, you, if you read it carefully, he said Ukraine's rightful place is in the Euro-Atlantic family. Well, that's something that was sort of been said for about 15 years. Um, Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO. Well, that was something that was decided in 2008, but they didn't say when or how. But he's still not saying when or how. Um, and um, he says our support will make it possible with time. I think the two key words in that sentence are the last two, with time. Um, in fact, NATO can't offer Ukraine membership now. It can't offer Ukraine membership for the foreseeable future. There isn't a consensus. Um, even the United States thinks that would be a bad idea because you get into uh, uh, having to de determine under what circumstances you could invoke NATO's mutual defense uh, clause, Article 5, uh, a, a country that's still at war or a country uh, that ends the war with something less than a complete peace treaty and ends up possibly still having foreign forces occupying part of its territory. Very difficult to, dis to determine what you do. And you saw that the immediate reaction to that um, polemical reaction um, from the Hungarian prime minister, but every member state, including Hungary, gets a veto on this, was mm. simply to ask in one word, what? <laughs> um, I hope I'm reading his tweet right. Maybe he said, what? But <laughs> it sounded more like a what? <laughs> um, and I think it was a warning shot. Um, so if NATO can't promise Ukraine membership at Vilnius, which I'm certain of, what can it, I mean, in other words, can't give it membership here and now, what can it do? Um, the, the talks in 2008 got stuck on a roadmap uh, on uh, uh, what was called a membership action plan, which is a series of steps that you would have to take in order to become a member. So could they now agree on a membership action plan? I think that would still be putting it on too much of an autopilot for many member states, possibly including for the United States. So I think they're going to talk about some sort of security guarantees, as they call it. I think we could call them security arrangements because I don't think they really guarantee anything. And I'm not sure that the Ukrainians will consider them to be guarantees. So there will be commitments made uh, to stay with Ukraine for as long as it takes to help Ukraine rebuild militarily, to rebuild its defense industry over the long term exercises, uh, training, all of the things which, which have been going on but will, will, will again be pledged. And perhaps you'll get uh, a group of allies that will sort of sign some document with Zelensky, although I'm still not sure. I'm not sure that such a document is being drafted yet. Um, and the way the United States works, um, these decisions get taken very quite late, as you will remember from your yeah. days as after at NATO. Everybody's sitting there sort of marking time and the European allies are sort of saying what they want in the text and so on, while the US inter-agency in, inter process grinds on. Um, and then the United States finally comes in having reconciled the differences among its ministries, whatever, and says, this is what we're going to do. And it's it very difficult to budge because 
it's been through uh, the meat grinder in Washington. So I think that's what you're going to see. Um, but also on, the, on the, the menu for this year is a European Union decision, which I think probably Ukraine will get, providing it does the business of reforming and passing reforms in Parliament, which it's, it's doing at the moment, um, uh, is the start of accession negotiations for the EU. And that comes probably at the end of the year, at the last EU summit of the year in December. Uh, before that, the European Commission has to put forward its assessment of the readiness of uh, Ukraine to do that. There may be some sort of conditional thing. We can open negotiations if you do X, Y, and Z, and so on. But that will be a, a further step forward in its ambitions to join the EU. And then you may have uh, small groups of countries such as the Central and East European countries within the EU that will also um, uh, reach out to Ukraine in some way, perhaps. In, in engaging them in things like the Bucharest Nine, which is uh, nine Eastern uh, EU ally, yeah. uh, allies that, that meet regularly. So or that, maybe the Visegrad format or something. Paul, Chris, yeah. uh, I, I'm mindful of the clock and we only have five minutes to go. So I'm going to sort of put three ideas on the table and I'm going to ask each of you to not necessarily respond to all three, but but but, but pick up what you want uh, before we close. I mean, there is um, number one, um, maybe looking at Chris, the, the meeting last week in Ramstein uh, of the Ukraine support group, which is the many the NATO countries, many outside NATO, but it didn't sort of produce uh, some of the big sort of announcements on spending on weapons transfers that we've seen in the past it, it was mainly chris you spoke about this logistics maintenance uh, the danes and the netherlands getting together to buy a few more leopard 2 tanks but quite limited does that mean uh, that we're running out of uh, track when it comes to uh, the money the 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 stocks the ability to continue to uh, supply ukraine the, the second thing i picked up was the g7 out in Japan, uh, where the Americans were pushing for a total ban on exports to Russia, but the Japanese and the EU countries are holding back, saying, well, no, we don't want to ban everything. Um, uh, does that mean that as far as sanctions are concerned, again, we're running out of track in the ability to come up with new things to ratchet up the press pressure? And, and then finally, uh, Paul, I, I know that you'll be interested in this, uh, Macron's visit to China, the attempt to engage, no matter how realistically or otherwise, the Chinese in, in putting pressure on the Russians to move towards uh, ne negotiations. He he got a lot of stick uh, from some of his EU colleagues, uh, maybe not for the uh, uh, the initiative, but maybe some of the language in which it was couched, which seemed to go somewhat easy on China. But does that sort of mean also that we're seeing a bit of Ukraine fatigue within the EU and that uh, increasingly we're going to have uh, people like Macron trying to come up with some kind of framework to get to the negotiating table? So those are the three things um uh we're gonna have to go quickly sorry about that but the clock is the clock so chris over to you first and then the final word to paul thanks jamie i think uh the biggest difference at ramstein from last year to this year was last year it was about the survival of ukraine and this year ukraine showed up saying we're talking about victory arm us for victory so big change there i think the main of the you know 50 countries including 30 nato members present I think the biggest themes this year are delivering what they've already promised because these things take these things do take time delivering the goods delivering the ammunition delivering the training and I think this year a lot of it's also about filling out some of the uh, ammunition logistics maintenance these things are hugely important they're not 
sexy enough. They're not bright, shiny objects that the media really pays attention to. But for military professionals, this is the bread and butter that will enable Ukraine to uh, achieve victory, to be able to launch a counteroffensive. So I think in that way, uh, there's a lot happening there, uh, but it's you know, it may not be as bright and shiny as the media wants to see. But I think hugely important, a lot of the discussions, a lot of the new things they're talking about delivering. Uh, but again, it's one thing to promise. It's another thing to deliver a capability, a trained armed capability that takes time. Chris, thanks very much. OK, Paul, uh, the final uh, word is. So, so, so sanctions, basically. Yes, we are running out. We're starting to run out of new things we can put sanctions on. There's still. I guess, uh, atomic cooperation, but that's quite difficult for countries whose reactors depend on supplies uh, from Russia uh, or are built with Russian technology. Um, but the, 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 the sanctions track is mostly now about enforcement. There's a lot of leakage. There's a lot of, Russia's getting a lot of Western kit, kit from third countries. Uh, and some of those, um, uh, you know, so the, the focus now is gonna be trying to put the screws on those countries. Uh, and finding ways to pressure them uh, not to circumvent sanctions. But uh, it's hard because we don't have uh, leverage over all of those countries and may, they have their own reasons for doing it. And uh, uh, on, on Macron China, I think of one of Macron's illustrious predecessors would probably have said that the president had missed a good, a good opportunity to shut up. Um, that said, <coughs> he does like to get, you know, kick the hornet's nest from time to time and say something controversial uh, uh, that then leads to a productive discussion of an issue that everybody was kind of uh, uh, sweeping under the carpet. You remember it when he said that NATO was experiencing brain death. Um, and in this case, uh, he has a point that nobody in Europe wants to be dragged into a war over Taiwan and that some of the provocations on Taiwan in European eyes are coming from American China hawks and not necessarily uh, all of them from Beijing. Uh, and this is unspoken, but you know, when, when American politicians make high profile visits to Taiwan or have meetings with Taiwan, um, uh, uh, that will predictably uh, 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 solicit and is perhaps meant to solicit uh, a disproportionate Chinese reaction and to create a crisis. So um, I think what Europeans can agree on is that the only acceptable uh, formula for Taiwan is to stick to the status quo. Um, and if they can agree on that message in a united way and make that point to the United States and to all parts of the United States polity, not necessarily just to the administration, but also to the Republicans, um, that would be great. But then, you know, if we had some ham and had some eggs, we could have some ham and eggs. <laughs> so, uh, final, final point on, on uh, China, I would say, is that, you know, I, I, uh, Europe's um, uh, policy on China is a bit like uh, Wagner's music. It's not as bad as it sounds. You know, it sounds like we're having furious rows about China. And yes, there are differences. Um, and some uh, of our allies, and it tends to be more in how they relate to the United States. Some of our allies are more hawkish on China because they are very close to the United States, want the United States to protect them and take and see the world through the sort of US lenses of uh, an endless battle between democracy and autocracy with no shades of gray. And other allies, 
um, for their own reasons and out of their own interest, see it differently. They have huge economic ties with China, um, and they, you know, they've just suffered one massive disruption to their economy uh, through uh, the loss of or energy supplies from Russia um, and trade with Russia and so on. And a second blow of that magnitude or greater magnitude, the loss of uh, the, the economic relationship with China uh, would lay their economies low. And if they're not forced to make that break, they won't make it. And at the moment, what they want to do is to avoid the kind of incidents, the kind of, of violence that would force them to make those choices. They're not about, and in the meantime, the European Commission is, is pointing to ways in which Europe can reduce the risk in that relationship, de-risking rather than decoupling, so that if uh, there is uh, an incident in, in Taiwan, which is out of our control, uh, and if China were to do something uh, uh, violent, then we would be in a less risky position than we are today. But that's a long-term process, uh, can't be done overnight. Yeah, and China and Taiwan and uh, European and US diplomacy, again, a good topic, uh, gents, uh, prepare already uh, for one of our future friends of Europe, uh, frankly speaking, uh, on security uh, podcast. But we've run out of time for today. So what do I take away from this? Well, it's all about sustaining Ukraine, uh, maybe for the long haul. Uh, the spring offensive, when it comes uh, by Ukraine, has to count. So maybe later and better uh, rather than sooner and not successful. Uh, we are now into the long-term uh, political integration perspectives uh, for Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis NATO and the EU. Uh, we've got to get the international diplomacy right, um, and we've got to keep somehow the pressure up on Russia. Um, for all of you who wanted a uh, deep dive um, and of excellent overview at the same time uh, of uh, where we are in the war in Ukraine. I hope that you will be truly satisfied uh, by today's uh, podcast. I think we had a good discussion. That's thanks again to Chris and Paul. Uh, and so uh, over and out from me, Jamie Shea from London, uh, but stay tuned. Uh, the three of us will be back uh, and uh, we'll keep you updated on Ukraine and everything else that counts in today's global geopolitics. Goodbye for now. We'll leave it there for today. If you haven't already, consider subscribing to the Frankly Speaking podcast newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And if you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review or a rating as it truly helps us reach more curious minds like yours. And don't forget to tune in again this time next week.